The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. It's so good to sing those songs, but I wonder as I'm... And, and I, I think we can, but I, I'm asking this question to cause you to think. When you sing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus," can you honestly admit that's, that's the desire of my heart? Um, when we sing songs about him being mighty and him doing great things, do we believe that? When we sing the song, Seas of Crimson, that we started out with, that says, for every curse, you're the cure. For every sickness, you're the healer. For every storm, you're the calm. For all that's lost, oh, what a Savior. Do we believe that? Or are we at times, and the answer is definitively yes, all of us in this room at times are knowing that, but then going out and searching for other cures. We're turning to other saviors. And it it reminds us over and over again of just how much we need the Savior himself. And I so appreciate that, that sort of last line in that old hymn, Oh, for grace to trust him more. That ought to be the heart cry of every one of us. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Because all of us are aware we love the Lord. If you're a believer here, you love the Lord. You, you trust him, but there are so many times when you fail and you're trusting. And you need the grace to trust him all the more. So let that be our heart cry this morning. I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 8. We're going to begin, um, or we're going to continue walking through Exodus verse by verse, section by section, and we are in the middle of the plagues. I walked up to Ethan this morning and I said, gnats. And he looked at me and he said, what? I said, the plagues, gnats, that's where I am this morning. And he said, Oh, Egypt! You know, like, he was, he was totally lost. Uh, thought he should go out and find something to spray, I guess, this morning. But, uh, but that's where we'll be. I, I thought about this this week. I was, I was reading this passage and studying this passage and God using gnats, of all things, to deliver his people. And then I was I, I, sort of juxtaposing that with Scripture describing Satan as very real sometimes describing him as a snake or a serpent, other times describing him as a lion prowling about, seeking whom he may devour. And I thought, you know, this is just like God, to defeat a lion with gnats. Let that sink in for just a minute. That is the power of our God. Now, the kids all think that's funny. But, uh, and you thought it was somewhat humorous as well, if you think about it, that God would use gnats to free his people. But that's exactly what God's going to do. I want us to look this morning at Exodus chapter 8, 16 through 19 in the time that we have. Let's read this together. You follow along as I read. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. 
But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I want to show you some things from this very brief text this morning. And I want to drag it out and belabor every little point, but I do believe there are at least three or four things that, that God has to show us from this passage today. The first is this. God's judgment will come with no warning. God's judgment will come with no warning. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that God often was gracious in giving Pharaoh warning before he sent the plague. Uh, just in that last plague in, in, with the frogs, he went to Pharaoh, had Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh beforehand and said, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to plague you with the frogs. And so he issues this warning ahead of time. When he comes and he's, he's going to turn the river to blood, before he turns the river to blood, he gives warning Let my people go. Up till now you've been stubborn. But he gives warning and he gives an opportunity for Pharaoh to relent. But now, in this moment, no warning. God simply strikes without warning. And and we don't know exactly why. Perhaps God here gives no warning because in that last plague, in the middle of it, when frogs were everywhere, they were even up on Pharaoh himself, Pharaoh said, if you'll pray to your God and God will get rid of these things, I'll let the people go. But then as soon as the frogs were gone, Pharaoh changed his mind. And so perhaps because Pharaoh didn't keep his word to God, God now just brings this next plague without any warning. We don't know. Perhaps it's just part of the, the design and the pattern of God. If, if you study the plagues and you sort of step back from them and look at, look at really nine with the, the tenth being sort of tacked on at the end, they're grouped into groups of three. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And in every single one of them, one and two, there's a warning. In three, there's no warning. Four and five, there's warning. In six, there's no warning. In seven and eight, there's warning. In nine, there's no warning. And so maybe this is just part of God's design or plan. We don't really know. But I point this out to you this morning, and I want to sort of digress from the immediacy of the text for just a minute. It ought to remind us that We live in a day where it seems like right now, it seems like it's going to go on and on and on forever. That we live in this day of warning that is a long, long, long period of time since Jesus was resurrected from the tomb and has gone to be with the Father and promised to return. It has been a long time, but there is coming a day when it will seem like judgment comes with no warning. This is what we read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let me just walk through this with you quickly. Verses 1 through 3 said, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is the day of judgment, the day Christ will return with judgment. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Nobody, nobody puts that on their calendar. Nobody schedules that. You know, said, well, you know, it's about time we had a break-in, so I think I'll just schedule that. And I'll contact my, my local criminal, and I'll, I'll get him to get us on the calendar, and he'll show up. This is the point here. The coming of the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. You won't know it's coming. You will only know after the fact. It goes on, and it says, it, it, like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security... 
then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Uh, You know, sometimes pregnancies and and the delivery is planned. Other times, a woman goes into labor, and it's on. And I've shared this with you before, but when Lana went into labor with Micaiah, uh, I was so freaked out and panicked that I backed our van through the garage door trying to get to the hospital. Um, not really through it, but I, I did some damage, you know, just because I was, I was kind of in my mind freaking out. And this thing was on, and I'm not even the one pregnant, you know. And so, I, you know, this is, this is how it describes it here, that one day judgment's coming like this. Verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, those without Christ are described as sleeping. This is not a derogatory statement or a put-down against non-believers in this world. This is not saying that non-believers, they're they're all just a bunch of heathens and they're they're just sleeping at the wheel. This is not derogatory at all. This is not pointing out some fault. This is pointing out the reality of their state. When the Bible here talks about a non-believer, those without Christ, as sleeping... It's talking about the fact that they're living with no consciousness of this day coming. They're just not aware of it. They're just not looking for it. The text goes on, and it reveals to us that for the believer, that this day of judgment that is coming ought to be something that we rejoice in and that we look forward to. Verses five, 4 and 5 of First Thessalonians 5 says, "...but you are not in darkness, brothers." For that day to, to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So for the believer, we are well aware. We look at our culture and we see a culture that seem, seems to be asleep and unaware of God and unconcerned with Him. But you and I know that all of what is going on now is heaping up evidence for judgment. This is a day that we should not fear We shouldn't dread this day, but nor should we hoard it to ourselves in a triumphant manner, lording it over those who are without Christ, drawing a line between us and them. Instead, it ought to motivate us to go. Because here's what I want you to see, church. In this passage, in Exodus as well as in 1 Thessalonians, there's going to come a day like a thief in the night that's going to seem to come with no warning But really, there was warning all along. Church, you and I are to be those sounding the cry. You and I are to be the ones who are like John the Baptist, sounding out a cry in the wilderness, warning of this day. Not warning in this judgmental, triumphant way, putting ourselves in ivory towers, looking down on others, but instead calling out to friends and neighbors, and co-workers, and entering into conversations with them about the reality of God and the reality of His judgment. This is what is meant here in 1 Thessalonians as that section finishes out. 6 through 11, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. What he's meaning there, not, not sober in that he's, he's talking about alcohol in this day. He's talking about that you and I ought to live with, with this right thinking. Do you, I'm sure you're aware, but sometimes we need to be reminded 
that our culture is constantly telling us a lie. Our, our culture is constantly telling us things that are, that are an anti-gospel. Our culture is constantly telling us not to trust Jesus. Our culture is constantly telling us that God is not mighty, that maybe He doesn't exist at all, that He's not the cure, that He's not the hope, that He's not the Savior. And you and I are to live in this world soberly, meaning we are to live in this world reminding ourselves that the Bible is true, that all those things we sing and all those things we read in here are indeed true. And that takes sometimes preaching to yourself. It takes sometimes reminding yourself and reminding brothers and sisters, I know what it looks like right now in your circumstances, but the reality is God's on his throne. Jesus is out of the tomb, and one day he's coming again. We live soberly. He goes on and he says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And he goes on for there, but I just want to draw your attention to those couple of words there, faith and love. Faith means that, that we not only are thinking rightly, but that we are behaving directed from the truth of God, right? That we're, we believe these things, but that shows up in our behavior. You, you can't exercise faith in a vacuum. Faith comes out as you live. It means that you live differently, but not just faith. He says also love. So not only should our behavior, our decisions, our actions come from taking God at His Word, but our, then our behavior is also directed toward loving others. And this is the difference in how so many in the church today are responding to the cultural issues. See, it's real easy to stop short of love and to get on a blog or to get on Facebook and to post things that are indeed true, but to do so in such a way that are not loving and that, in, that, that cause more damage, that put more walls up. We ought to stand where the Bible stands. But we, we are not to. The, Ephesians 6 calls this Bible a weapon. That we should be good stewards of how we wield it. You get what I'm saying? Um, so here, there's going to come a day when judgment is going to come seemingly without warning. But I'm telling you, church, we as believers are that warning in this day. As God comes to Pharaoh now without warning, he will one day, it'll seem like it to those without Christ when he comes. But you and I are the voices sounding that warning today. Thabiti Aniabwile um, is a pastor in, in Washington, D.C. He said this, We cannot live as though we have an unending parade of days made for the unending parade of our sins. We dare not live as though the judgment day is not coming. Church, we better be convinced and sure that this day is coming. One of the things I'm praying for more and more in my life, and I'm praying for it in yours as well, but I'm starting with myself. I'm praying that I would become more and more and more aware of my sin. And I would become grieved over my sin. I pray that we would be a church that, that knows that it was sin that caused Jesus to go to the cross. And that we wouldn't be a church that simply takes 
comfort in the fact that Jesus has died for our sins and, and all of our sins are washed away. I think we should comfort in that, but we shouldn't do so in such a way that says, now let me go out and sin all I want. I'm praying that we would increasingly become a holy congregation to the glory of God so that when we sound these warnings, there's credence in our voice. Second thing I'll point out to you from this text is that the earth and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. The earth and all that's in it belongs to the Lord. In verses 16 and 17, uh, here God tells Moses and Aaron to stretch out the staff and to strike the dust of the earth so that it will become gnats, and gnats will go all over the land of Egypt. And and what God is displaying here, there's a couple of of things that God is displaying. Uh, He's displaying His sovereignty in, this, in that one, those two verses, look at what God is sovereign over. The dust, the earth, the gnats. The, he's sovereign over Egypt and Pharaoh. He's sovereign over Moses and Aaron who go and do his bidding. He's sovereign over man and beast who had said that the gnats come upon. And God's doing at least a couple things here when he shows us this sovereignty. And I want to focus on that little word dust for just a few minutes. Dust is used at least a a couple of different ways in the Bible. One, um, the Bible uses dust to talk about a number that's too large to count. This is the way it was used when God promised to make Abraham a great nation. He, He told Abraham in Genesis 13, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. So God comes and says, look, Abraham, you're going to have so many descendants, they're going to be like the dust of the ground. And so I think that's part of what God is doing here is he's showing us just the innumerable gnats that are going to cover Egypt. They're going to be everywhere. In fact, we're not even sure that these are gnats. Maybe you have a translation here today that translates it as something different. Uh, I think the King James Version translates it as lice, I think. Um, is that right? And, and others translate it other, other ways. This word in the, in the Hebrew it just simply means two-winged, biting insects. Now, those who just come back with some experiences from the mission trip, I'm sorry this was this, this week that this came up, but, uh, but here we are. Now, the language isn't specific. It's just talking about these pesky, two-winged, biting insects. It, it, it could be any number of things. It could be gnats. It could be flies. You ever, you ever gotten that fly that won't leave you alone? Um, in my study... Uh, our little shack, we refer to it as, across the driveway. I have, uh, I have a, a fly swatter in there. I have cans of spray in there because I cannot stand when they get in there. And, and if they come in, they are dead, right? Uh, I, I'm just going to take care of them. It, it could be mosquitoes. Look at the way it describes it. They've come up in an innumerable way all over the land of Egypt. Can you imagine... Can you imagine what this would have been like? I remember um, when I first came to be your pastor. I'm not a camper, uh, but my family decided to go camping with, with my sister and her family. And uh, we went and camped in this, um, this state park, and we did it in a rugged way. There was, it wasn't the KOA. It was the, the bathhouse through the woods, and that's all it was. Right? Or not even the bathhouse. It was just bathrooms uh, through the woods. And I remember going in there one night and, and uh, thinking, you know, that's strange that they put wallpaper 
in this bathroom out here in the woods in this state park. This is just strange. Why would they put wallpaper up? That's kind of pretty. It's like mosquitoes everywhere. It's kind of cool. And then I moved. And they moved. And it wasn't wallpaper. They were everywhere. I I imagine this might have been what it was like to just be covered up with these things. Philo of Alexandria, writing in the first century, described these as um, creeping up people's noses and into their ears. Yeah, see, I can't say that to you without you going, you know. I looked around and everybody in here just, you know, all right? This is what God's doing. So he's showing us the number, this number of these bugs that are just too large to, to count. If they're mosquitoes, if they're any type of biting thing, imagine just the the disease that would be spread through these, right? It is a terrible ordeal. Second way dust is used in Scripture, though, is to talk about the beginning and the end of all men and women. That in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord formed man from the dust of the earth. And in Genesis 3, verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so maybe there's this God showing this huge number, innumerable amount of mosquitoes or gnats or flying, biting insects, but also what he's doing is he's showing Pharaoh, I'm sovereign over every man, over every woman, all the way down to the dust from which you came. Especially, I think, he's pointing this out to Pharaoh. The Egyptians believed that Pharaoh had had the ability to maintain cosmic order. That uh, They called this ma'at. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but ma'at was universal equilibrium. That it it was the, the cosmic force of harmony, order, stability, and security. They believed that Pharaoh, it was his responsibility to maintain Ma'at by controlling the climate, regulating the seasons, and generally preserving order in the world. And they're looking to Pharaoh to do this. And, I, and this is, this is the, the shallowness and the emptiness of the hope in which they're placing their, their, their hope. And when God comes and strikes the dust to the ground and there are gnats or mosquitoes or flying, biting insects everywhere, it is a direct slap in the face of Pharaoh himself. Now his own people begin to turn and question his ability to lead, his ability to be sovereign. Before we're too hard, though, on Pharaoh, we should ask ourselves, we look at the Egyptian culture and we say they're, they're basing their security on Pharaoh's ability to control the climate and the seasons and those sort of things. I, I think we should also look at what we're also basing our security on. How many times do, do we look at the things around us as if as, uh, uh, only if, if those stay in place, then everything is good? If I keep my job or if I get a a promotion, then everything will be good. If, if the market's doing well and my investments are climbing, then I'm good. As long as we're young and we have strength and our health and good looks and all that, we think, I'm good. But what happens when those things fade? What happens when the market takes a downturn? What, what happens when you're laid off? What happens when time catches up to you? 
What is your security based on? We had better be placing our hope and finding our security in Christ alone. Ethan read that passage, and I was... uh, I'm just always amazed how God works uh, in, in what God leads Ethan to, to choose for songs or Scripture to read, as well as what I'm talking about in, in the sermon. Colossians 1 speaks to this. Colossians 1 talks about Christ and says, For by Him all things were created, in, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And then this is the best line. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What this means is that when Supreme Court justices come out with decisions that go directly in contradiction to the Word of God, we don't have to run around into a panic because our security is not in what our culture dictates. Our security is in Christ. Christ is out of the grave. Nobody's putting him back in the grave. He's on his throne. He's coming again. He's holding all things together. This didn't take God by surprise. This decision didn't take the Trinity by surprise at all. Our security better be in him. Third is this, uh, not only do all things in heaven and on earth belong to him, but third, there is no power equal to the Lord's. There is no power equal to the Lord's. In verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So so there were gnats on man and beast. I want to drill down here and I want to begin to talk about the, the, the darkness that's behind what these magicians in Egypt are doing. And this is not a popular thing to talk about in this day and age because you begin to talk about this and, and people say, are we not more enlightened than this? Can we not move on beyond this? Listen, we'll never become so enlightened that we can move beyond the truth that is revealed in the pages of this book. According to Scripture, Satan has several powers. Satan has the power to rebel. In Isaiah chapter 14, it tells the story of him leading a revolt in heaven and being cast out of heaven. Satan has the power to tempt. In Matthew 4, Satan goes out into the wilderness with Jesus and tempts him multiple times. Satan has the power to deceive. Revelation 20 verse 10 speaks of that. Satan has the power to accuse. He's the accuser of the brethren, Zechariah 3 and other places. Satan has the power to hold sinners captive in their iniquity. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 26. Satan has the power to torment believers with afflictions. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about there was given to him a thorn in the flesh, and he calls it a messenger of Satan. And, and it's used by God to keep him from being conceited, but Satan has this power. In Job chapter 2, you know the story of Job. He goes before God, and God said, Have you considered my servant Job? And long story short, Satan said, the only reason he's not cursed you is because you've kept him from me. Let me, let me touch him. Let me, let, me, let me get to him. And God said, do what you will, but spare his life. And Satan has real power to afflict, to torment. 
Jesus told the martyrs in the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. When Peter was brash and bold before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, Satan has asked for you, but I've prayed for you. Satan has power to demand, and sometimes, as I read this week, sometimes God grants those demands. Satan has the power of death, Hebrews 2.14 says. God even gave Satan the power to betray his own son through Judas in Luke 22. But listen to what Philip Graham Ryken said in his commentary on Exodus. Satan is very powerful, but his powers are limited. He cannot create, he can only destroy. He cannot redeem, he can only be damned. He cannot love, he can only hate. He cannot be humble, he can only be proud. Most crushingly of all, he was unable to keep God's Son in the grave. God broke the devil's power by raising Jesus from the dead. In the end, Satan will be utterly vanquished. All his evil plans will come to nothing, and he himself will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Church, we should, we should think on this often. We should be aware. I, I posted on my Facebook page this morning an article from, uh, or yesterday, from DesiringGod.com about, about our enemy. We need to be aware of our enemy. Our enemy is real. I think too often we as believers in this world live our lives not looking for him. But the Bible warns us. The Bible comes with what, what was called rough edges. And, and we try to smooth those edges off, and we forget to look for this enemy prowling for us. Do you know who's hunting you? But we also ought to remember that he is real, and he has power, but his power is limited. He is not greater than our God. He is no match for our God. There is no power equal to our gods. As these magicians come with their secret arts, tapping into demonic power, they are no match for God and what he's doing. Up till now, they've been able to reproduce. They've been able to to copy, to reproduce the the blood. They've been able to reproduce frogs. But now they are limited even, and they can't reproduce these gnats. And God is displaying to them and showing them that he alone is sovereign. The fourth thing I'll show you quickly in this passage this morning is this. Others often begin to see what our pride blinds us to. Others often begin to see what our pride blinds us to. In verse 19, the magicians turn and they tell Pharaoh. This is the first time. They, they turn and tell Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now, we just read over that, and we don't put ourselves in their shoes at all, but think about what it was for them to turn to Pharaoh and tell him that. If anybody, if anybody wanted to find some other way to explain this, other than giving credit to the God of Israel, it would have been them. Number one, they were embarrassed that they weren't able to do this thing, so their pride would have been at at a heightened level. But number two, they were turning to the man who could have their lives taken from them at admitting failure. 
So if anybody would like to say, this is not, not God, this is something else, it would have been them. But at the end of the day, they couldn't. They come to the end of themselves, and they have to admit, this is God. Once again, the Bible here tells us that Pharaoh hardens his heart. That he, he won't listen to them. His pride is blinding him to his sin. But I want you to notice the people around him are beginning to see because they are feeling the full blunt of his rebellion. And this is what often happens with the people in our lives. Is our rebellion doesn't just hurt us, it hurts the people around us. We, we often, in, when we're confronted with sin, we're confronted with things that we're blind to. And, and oftentimes when I have had to be in that position of, of confronting someone in sin, um, oftentimes the response is, that's not true. And, and we can become so convinced, and maybe, maybe there have been times when it wasn't true, but we can become so convinced that, that we are not in sin because we're blind to it. You know, I, I've been in my car before and, and um, went to switch lanes only to have someone begin to lay on the horn next to me. And the reason was they were in my blind spot. I didn't see them. And, and Christian, I want you to be very aware here today that there are some things in your life that you may be blind to. And just as these pagan, godless magicians begin to see what Pharaoh's sin is really doing, and they begin to see the reality of God himself, there will be some people in your life that may be in your life for a reason to point some things out to you. This is why it's important for us to be in small groups. This is why it's important for us to be in a Sunday school class. This is why it's important for us to have a friend or two that have permission to speak into our lives, to call us out on some things. If you're living this life and nobody has any right to confront you, you're in a dangerous position. You've got blind spots that you're not aware of. They don't call them blind spots because that's a cute name. You're blind to them. You need some people in your life to call these things out to you. You need to be a person in someone's life. And I don't mean we go around just looking for faults in other people. Matthew talks about this, that we would first remove the log from our own eye so that then we would be able to help our brother remove the speck from his. But there is indeed this need for us to be involved with one another's life in such a way that we would call each other on sin, that we would lovingly confront and lovingly encourage as, as a person is given opportunity to turn and repent and trust the Lord. Along the way, all of us are going to be in this position. I mean, how many times have you fallen and the philosophy of our modern day is, I fall down so I can learn to get back up. And the reality is, it's unbiblical. There is learning that takes place in falling down. But in falling down, there ought to be brothers and sisters alongside of us that will help us back up. And this is maybe obscure from this passage, but I just wanted to point it out to you today. Well, What's in their confession? What's in this, this confession of these magicians? Well, I've already told you one. They're, they're pointing out that, hey, this thing's bigger than us. This is, this is the finger of God. They're acknowledging that this is supernatural. 
that when modern scholars, when you read all about uh, Exodus and all that went down here, modern scholars will, will try to explain everything away using natural means. They will say, well, the blood wasn't really blood. It was an algae in the water. And then that caused the fish to die. And then, then from there, the frogs moved up on land. And then when the frogs died out, then that caused flies and, and mosquitoes and all that. And, and they try to explain everything away. And one of the proofs for the historicity and the veracity of the Bible is the fact that these Egyptians here, these magicians, if anybody wanted to give any credit anywhere else, it would have been them. But instead, they're left saying, this is the finger of God. And let us be a people that are rock solid in our confidence that the Bible is God's word. Even in this day and beyond this day, when things grow worse and worse, Second thing, question you might have is when they say, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, are they really saying that God has a literal finger? You say, well, that's kind of dumb. Why would you deal with that, Pastor? Because I just, I, it's one of those things that I think we kind of have to deal with. They're not saying God has a real literal finger, but aren't you glad that God interacts with us in a way that is so personal that sometimes it feels like he does? Aren't you glad sometimes that when you're going through the hardship of life, that it feels as though his arms are wrapped around you? Don't you, aren't you glad, believer, that when you're off in your rebellion and sin, it feels like he has a paddle? Aren't you glad that he disciplines you? Aren't you glad that he loves you? Aren't you glad that... Aren't you glad that he interacts with you like he has a real body and he is intimately involved with us? I could go on and on about that. And some, right now you're thinking of other things that, that could be applications out of that. But I'll just leave it there. The Egyptian magicians are right now feeling the real weight, the real weight of the hand of God, the finger of God. Because Pharaoh's sin is coming up against the holiness of a sovereign God. And they're feeling the finger. And it scares them to death. They were beginning to acknowledge the Lord as God just as he said they would. In Exodus chapter 7 verse 5, the Egyptians uh, shall know, God said, that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people from Israel from among them. Ligon Duncan said, God will cause the wrath of man to praise him. And that's what's happening here. God said beforehand they would come to see him, who he really was. And they're the first ones. Think about this. In, in the entire book of Exodus, the very first people to say that this is the hand of God, that God's doing this, are these Egyptian magicians. God's word is coming forth. But I want you to see that they stopped short of conversion. When, the, when they say here to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, they don't say, this is the finger of Yahweh. They don't say, this is the finger of Jehovah. They say, this is the finger of Elohim. Elohim was the generic, general name of God. And so at this point, they're not seeing the God of the Hebrews and coming to know him as Lord. At this point, they're just saying, this thing's beyond us. This thing is, this is the power that is higher than, than, than ours. This is God that is above all our gods, but they don't know who he is. 
And, and I point that out to you because in our world today, there are many who claim to know the Lord. They believe in God. But really, if, if they're pressed, when it comes down to it, they really know little more than the existence of God. If we come down to it, knowing the existence of God, knowing that a God exists is not enough to save you. The Bible talks about that the, the, the demons believe and shudder with fear, but the demons are not saved. The Bible says that there is no way other than through faith in God's Son, Jesus, to be saved. And at this point, they have stopped short of this. And I wonder about you here today. I know that this is the church on Sunday morning, and we're gathered here, and by and large, probably a lot of you are Christians. You're a, lot of, a lot of people in here are believers. But I heard just in a Sunday school lesson this morning uh, just a, a brief snippet of a story of a man who thought he was saved, but later came to know the Lord as Savior. And I wonder if maybe there's some of you in this place today that you would say today, I believe God, I believe in God, but you don't really know Him. I, I, would, I would just want to ask you today, are you trusting completely in the finished work of Jesus as your only hope, as your only basis of making you right before God? Are you ready if this day of judgment comes suddenly? I, I, I don't want to use this pulpit to emotionally manipulate. I guard myself against that. But passages like this and passages like Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 5 and other places are rough and they cause us to think. We don't know when this day will come. But one day it will. And I would implore you to ask yourself today, are you ready? Are you trusting the Lord? Today the Bible teaches that you today can turn from your sin and call on Jesus and be saved. The Bible teaches that, that if you will today admit that you are a sinner before God and turn to Him, then today He will forgive you of all your sins. Today, that song that we sang at the beginning, that he is the cure for every disease, can be the reality of, of the sin sickness of your heart. Many of you have struggled for years trying to find peace, trying to find rest, and the reality is it comes from this non-reality of the gospel in your life. Trust the Lord today, I implore you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I, I, I leave this passage where it is. I leave this sermon where it is, and I ask you, God, to do your work, to do your will. Lord, I, I, can't, I can't change hearts. Nobody here can. Only you can do that. And God, I ask you now, I ask you now, God, to take the, the word that has been shared, and God, that you would indeed cause it to sink in, that today, God, that you would call those who are dead to life, God, today that you would call people to yourself. I pray this for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you an opportunity just to think about what's been said, um, to, to think on what the Bible has to say, what God is saying to you, 
And if there's some way that you need to respond today in obedience, we want to give you that opportunity. The, uh, the steps up here make for a great opportunity for you to come and kneel and pray. There's nothing magical or special about those, but if you need to come and pray as a tangible expression of you turning from a particular sin and, and trusting the Lord, then, then by all means do that. There will be people in a prayer room through these doors that would love to pray with you. I talked about having brothers and sisters in your life. Uh, that's a great first step. Uh, if you're here today and you're not secure in Christ, you realize today that you are lost, that your sin condemns you, that you're not ready for that day, then I, I would love to talk with you. I, I would call you to, to just turn to Jesus, but if I can help you with that, I'm going to be seated down here on the front. I'd, I'd love for you to come and, and speak with me. I'd love to show you how to proceed from here. But there is forgiveness. There is hope in turning to the Lord. Let's respond as, as God calls on us in faith and response to his word. Let's worship him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.